0: I don't want to be that person. I always want there to be somebody in the room that I have to try to be as good as or as knowledgeable as. Because being the smartest person in the room can be a real dead end street.
1: Well, you never have to worry about that. Don't worry.
0: My (laughs) partner. Voice of the musical.
2: At the end of the Richard Stillgo interview I said that the next podcast was going to be with Charles Hart Um, but it's not because after I interviewed Charles um, a couple of weeks later I came up with some more questions that had been stimulated by the first interview so I phoned up Charles and I did a second interview which means that I've got a whole lot more editing to do before I can present that interview to you so instead the third podcast now becomes the second a real treat live from Cedar City, Utah the writers of Lend Me A Tenor which played this summer at London's Gielgud Theatre. Because of the long-distance phone connection, there's a little bit of a deterioration of the audio quality right at the end of the interview, but I hope that won't stop you listening all the way through, because these guys have some fantastic things to share. Welcome to Voice of the Musical. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Brad Carroll and Peter Sham, the authors of Lend Me a Tenor, uh, the musical adaptation of the play uh, by Ken Ludwig. I know you're meeting today on a rare day when you get together to talk about stuff. So thank you very much.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. Our pleasure.
2: You're my first visitors from across the pond. So that's very exciting. I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about how you met, maybe Brad first, then Pete.
0: Well, Peter and I met uh, in 2002 at the Utah Shakespearean Festival, where I was directing a production of Man of La Mancha. And Peter was playing Sancho Panza. So we met as director, actor. And uh, discovered pretty early on in the rehearsal process that there was a a, sort of a common sense of humor and a common sensibility about theater. And then we worked together the following summer in in 1776, which I was directing, and he was playing Ben Franklin. And it wasn't until 2004 that we actually decided to try to write something together. So we'd gotten to be really good friends over the course of a couple of years before the writing ever even came into the picture. And Peter, anything to add to that?
1: Uh no, I I actually didn't like him at all the first time I met. Him. So I don't I really don't know what the hell he's talking about. No, I, yeah, that's pretty much how it happened. And and uh, I don't know that either one of us knew that we even wrote anything or had attempted it in the, in, in our pasts. Um, and so uh, someone we there was a we had the good fortune that Brad had to step into a conductor's role and be here when we didn't expect it and so he had extra time on his hands and we sort of got together and it was in a parking lot that we just said hey you want to want to write something and uh, we pitched an idea to the festival for our first show uh, Christmas Carol on the air which is a radio version uh, play within a play version of uh, Christmas Carol and uh, we put something together in about 10 days uh, pitched it to them and and we were off and running and then then we enjoyed it so much that we, that tenor came along.
2: Tell me about that friendship that you, you built before you started collaboration. How important is that to know your, your collaborator well?
0: Well, I think it's really important. I mean, there, you know, there has to be a sense of trust. There has to be a sense of a lack of ego. We had developed a shorthand as director actor I mean, we have the same sensibility about theater and how to do it, and yet we come from sort of opposite ends of how to get to the middle. Uh, so I think it makes us a really good team in that way, in that we're able to uh, we're able to you know pitch the ball back and forth from opposite ends of the court, as it were, to arrive at uh, the net to follow the metaphor through. <laughs>
1: Um, I'm not quite sure what sport you were in. Yeah, I, I, was I was
0: in volleyball, <laughs> tennis, yeah. oh, something good. like
1: that. All right, volleyball. Now okay, um, I, I
0: got you. Uh, but I just think it's, I, I, just, I don't know how it would be to go to meet somebody, it, it, you know, in a workshop where they throw people together and try to write something yeah. without yeah. knowing the other person's sense of humor, sensibility, sense of the world. And uh, I think getting to know each other for a few years just sort of already put us in gear yeah. for, to be a writing team.
2: Because you've both written pieces before um, you came together on Christmas Carol. How did it compare with other collaborations that you had had?
0: Well, this, I mean, I'd had other collaborations, um, some of which were good, some of which were not, for reasons that I've already mentioned about, you know, being thrown into something with people you don't really know. And then you get to know them and think, oh, no, (laughs) what have (laughs) I done? Um, Well, I kept saying to everybody, I finally found the writing partner I've been looking for for 20 years. I mean, we were so simpatico, and, and that's not to say that we don't argue and we don't uh, snarl at one another, but, you know, we're always able to hug and say it's okay before we leave the room yeah. so that we can come back together again. But I really do. I feel like I've found the writing partner I've been in search of for 20 years.
1: Well, yeah, I don't think you really have a good partner unless you can have you can have drag-out fights, too. I think that's part of um, because we hang out, we we'll each hang on to certain things that we believe should be out there. You know, it's just human nature. I think. I, I think also a, a unifying thing is also the piece itself. Uh, uh, tenor had the kind of stuff that we both love in our lives. Uh, you know, the, the kind of comedy, the opera qualities, musical that it, it kind of made us stronger too. Uh, the mm-hmm. piece itself. You know, I don't know that we could write a Book of Mormon. It would be a kind of diff- a departure for us, yeah. you know. Not that we wouldn't like to try, you know. We certainly have our wacky ideas, but it would be our brand of wacky. Of
2: mm. brands. How did the two pieces differ? Um, obviously, one was written for a specific event. It happened. It was over. Lenby was a much longer process. But perhaps you can tell us a little bit about, maybe a little bit about the first piece, because that's the piece that people won't necessarily um, have heard uh, very much about.
1: Well, we ha- we, the Utah Shakespeare Festival, where we met, has kind of um, a bunch of, like any festival, and it seems like Shakespeare festivals are have even more of them, these kind of eccentric characters that, you know, that, have, that people know and love and they come back to see. And so uh, we started there. We, we wanted uh, the festival founder, actually, uh, Fred Adams. He's an actor himself and a natural Scrooge. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and we <laughs> I mean that in, in a good way I don't mean that in bad uh, His partner's the other <laughs> uh, No, no uh, We we, um, we We wanted to write something that was kind of tailor made For the festival And something like a celebration for the community And we, also something that we could plug into So we came up with a show within a show concept Where we actually are a touring group Called the Wright Brothers The two of us we actually play in the show as well. Uh And and so there's a backstory where, you know, we have Scrooge inside uh, the story and Scrooge outside the story. Uh, And it's, and it's a whole, and it's, and it's just a loving uh, homage to, to radio plays and the era that they come from. So it was, it was great fun. Again, again, it's the kind of piece for us that we have those sensibilities Mm -hmm. that was a natural for us to write, you know? So again, that's what, there's great fun in that for us, in that kind of quick dialogue back and forth, comedy, that kind of Abbott and Costello type of thing. Is, mm-hmm. is where we grew up, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of, thing.
0: and yet a great sense of heart, yes. at the center of it all, yeah, um, that I think grounds grounds the comedy. Yeah, that that's the thing I think that we that
1: we both do well, or at least we both like to search for, that maybe we find lacking in a lot of things that. Com- it, it, when we found each other, I think our other projects. For me, I can just say my other projects were didn't feel as complete as the projects that I'm doing with Brad because he'll call me on more things. I'll call him on more things. You know, I'll, I'll, we'll take each other to the mat on certain things and really try and get it right. I mean, we're kind of we come from a kind of a Pixar way of looking at things. <laughs> where really, I mean, I think we do set out to try and. To make the best possible thing we can, we can make. We don't, we don't want to churn it out, and we, and we you know, we will know. We, 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 won't, we don't want to send any musicals out before their time. We can.
2: Do you think there's a danger of not being honest enough with your collaborators, being too polite?
1: Yes, there's a danger. Uh, Brad doesn't worry about that danger. <laughs> 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 um, I, yeah, I mean well i think there's there 's a respect yeah okay that that you always have to have i mean I, I like to think of it as as long as we each think we are we 're geniuses to the others work you know if we if we think of each other as geniuses uh, then it 'll all work out you know i think of, I think of him as a musical genius when I, when I work with him. And I have that reverence always going, there's, it's always under that umbrella so I can hate his guts, uh, but also under the umbrella of, I love him as a genius. So, and there's a, there's a symbiotic need, I think when you have a good partner, you know, I, I think you could, I think you can say anything as long as it's, there's respect there and, and it's coming from the work.
0: Yeah. And, and to add to that, I mean, you can, you know that the respect exists when you get nervous about presenting something you've, yeah. Like when I've written a song set a song to his lyric, I'm always nervous about about playing it for him. You are? And I think it's just out of respect for for one another. Yeah.
2: You obviously had some great stewardship from the from the Utah Shakespearean Festival. How important is that having a production house that uh, is there to help you with your piece?
0: Well, I mean, it's it's so unusual at least in my experience to be a writer and know that what you're writing will be produced and you're, and you're not going to have to spend a year or seven shopping it around just what an inspiration it is to know that somebody trusts you, likes what you do enough to say, well, write it. And when it's ready, we will produce it. Um, you know, because I know lots of writers who've spent years writing something and it has yet to even be picked up anywhere. And, and And the festival you know continues to support us that way. you know, mm. I think if we wrote something new, they'd step forward and say yes we'd like to yeah. to premiere it for you um and it's It's a real gift i mean i don 't know what it's like in England, but in this country it's a gift, especially to have, in this economy yeah especially I mean, that in this, is, that's yeah. extraordinary actually
2: I think it's uh, difficult over here i mean there there are initiatives, and they spring up from time to time, of course. The difficulty is actually going from the workshop stage to production that's always the the the, the, cha- the challenge because because as we all know it's extremely expensive, so that sounds like a really wonderful kind of cu- coming together of lots of different elements
1: and 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 a lot of luck mixed in that too mm. i mean we, the, i think the strength of a Christmas carol because it ran for four seasons mm. and there's talk of bringing it back now, so it was a real crowd pleaser so you know also it's important to write something that that people have responded to. So between Christmas Carol and Lend Me a Tenor, the track record is also good. So, you know, if we had written a couple of you know, clunkers, which is, enti- it could always go that way. I mean, there's no, you don't don't know what can happen.
2: How do you think the Book of Mormon would have gone down at the Utah Shakespearean Festival?
1: <laughs> uh, it would have gone down, yes. <laughs> Correct. Well said. And stayed down. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh although, you know, I I'd say the more I listen to it, it's 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 wonderful. It's a wonderful piece. I mean, it it, it just it just
0: does it all. Yeah, it goes know. where people have not gone before. Honest mm. to goodness.
1: Mm. And it's, you know, it's yeah, it's it's glorious when it's glorious.
2: This podcast its subtitle is Inspiration, Technique and Success. So let's talk about inspiration. What are the pieces of either of musical theatre or of film comedy? What are the things that really inspire you to, to create in, in the vein that you want to create?
1: Uh, well, in, in, in the areas of musicals, uh, strangely enough, for me, it's not, uh, it's not even the comedy, the comic musicals. You know, uh, musicals like West Side Story, uh, Sweeney Todd, although it's got great comedy and it, you know, darker, but those kinds of things, those are really inspiring to me. The, the musical machine, uh, there are some musicals that are perfect breathing machines to me. Fiddler on the Roof, whenever I see Fiddler on the Roof, the construction of that is so perfect. Uh, and there's, there's many musicals, the ones that are the greats have that construction. And, and so there's a curiosity for me. It's almost like putting together a car. Uh, a great sports car. You know what? What is making that tick? And you can put all those parts in place, but then there's that extra something that is just this intangible. It's got to hit the right ears, at the right time, in place in the world, and you have no control over it. So you can build you can build a really great car, but you still have no guarantee that it's going to to run. I mean, it's an, it's amazing. Uh, so so. The fasc- I have a fascination with musicals. Uh, films are. are uh, my favorite film is actually "It's a Wonderful Life," Frank uh, <laughs> yes. Capra film, you know, and then "To Kill a Mockingbird." Very close on the heels. So, not so much comedies. Uh, although I have very great, com- you know, I would say Jackie and Cleason, Zero Mostel, Evan uh, Costello, those were my comic influences.
0: Talking comedy, they're great inspirations. Peter cited. Fitter on the roof, the construction of that book is the icon I go to because, I mean, it's, it's so lean and there's not a wasted word in it. And yet the scope of that story is, is epic. And I mean, that's, that's, you know, one of the problems I have with a lot of the of more recent things is just the honoring Construction and, and economy of words um, and staying on on point as far as the story you're telling. And I'm, I'm also with Peter. I mean, I love comedy. I grew up with comedy. My great icons are Lucy, Dick Van Dyke, you know, the Marx Brothers uh, and people like that because there's there's something so honest in their comedy. Saturday Night Live is funny, but to me, that's self-consciously funny in a way that Lucy and Dick Van Dyke and Carol Burnett are are able to to hook into the heart of whatever it is they're doing however outrageous it is if Lucy's dressed as a Martian there's a reason for it and um that has always influenced how I how I approach it and then musically i mean any any of the great musicals that broke new ground without even intending to You know, I think West Side is a perfect example. Sweeney Todd continues to be a score I go back to again and again and again. And I always find something new that I missed the last time. I don't remember if it was Aaron Copeland or Igor Stravinsky. When Leonard Bernstein was a young man, he says, well, I want to write American music. And one of his mentors said to him, well, said, well, just write music. You are an American. (laughs) It will be American music. You know, and to to just try to write from yourself, which I spent a lot of years not knowing how to do. I was always trying to either to sound like somebody or to not sound like somebody mm. and I think tenor opened up a portal where I just thought i've just I have to tell the story. it doesn't matter who I sound like or not sound like, and I've got enough people around me that if it does sound too much like somebody, they 'll tell me. <laughs> And I will go back and rework it because I don't want people to walk out of the theater going that one song sounded a lot like Sondheim. I don't want that to happen. So you know to go back and recraft something. Um, so that's all that it's all of a piece. Um, but obviously with a piece
1: like Tenor, there's a there's a certain homage to the those composers. Absolutely. So you want to absolutely.
0: You, you know, you do do want to have a flavor of that, but your own sense, your own. But I, yeah, emotions. I don't want any. I mean, it's fine if they say it's it, it's reminiscent of Gershwin, but if they say it sounded exactly like Swonderful, <laughs> yeah, then I need to go back to the drawing board. Right. So, and for me, musically, those old uh, American standards are sort of where I live. Gershwin, Porter, Berlin. And there's still still a, a great. I was I word. was born thirty years too late <laughs> for for who I am and musically in my heart.
2: Mm. But you also pitched yourself, uh, Brad, against, well, not ag- against, or certainly side-by-side with, with Verdi. You know, the, the, the Lennie Tenet right. opens with yeah. the storm scene from Otello. Did the Verdi come with the package as, as well? Or did... Not
0: at all. The, uh, the play, the entire play, takes place inside the penthouse. Uh-huh. And in the opening of the play, what you hear is Tito Morelli singing um, La Donna e Mobile. Uh-huh. And Maggie is listening to a recording of him and swooning. Yeah. And we decided, and were even encouraged by Ken uh, early on, to as we developed the musical, to get the heck out of that penthouse and open <laughs> it up. Yeah. And so we just started exploring. Well, what, what, where could we go that would feed the story? And we just decided that the best place to start would be the rehearse, the dress rehearsal that Tino hasn't arrived for. And um, rather than trying to create my own version of Verdi because it's public domain we said let's just open with otello and we did you know an abridged opening of otello or we'd still be there watching but uh, <laughs> yeah. but it it became it became a really wonderful puzzle how to do verdi at the beginning and then the 30s more 30s sound musical comedy score and blend them together because we wanted it to be a musical comedy not a not an homage to opera but with moments of homage and so we did a lot of playing back and forth of where can we include this, and I would find like little snippets and little thematic things from Verdi that are laced into the orchestration of some of the 30s songs. So it's always there without drawing attention to itself. And I, I feel like we were pretty successful. But you know, the world has to tell me that I can't decide. <laughs> well, I think we were.
1: I, I don't know that I equate any more uh, financial success. I mean, I still think we have It's going to run its course. It's Going to do whatever it's going to do. But I, I don't know that I, I can equate financial success with the work anymore. Because there's a lot of pieces that I that I find to be spectacular that never really found an audience. That 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 doesn't <coughs> diminish the work of the piece. I don't. I I, I don't think. I mm-hmm. think uh, they're all there. I mean, there's a lot of things. Well, went to, uh, I'll tell you a perfect example is Chicago. Chicago, when it first opened, was not a huge hit at all. It was not known as anything big, and now that's just a you know that's a phenomenon in this generation here. Actually, that, that Chicago is as great as it is. So you know, I, I like to think that you know, there there will be you know, a generation that will discover us. You know, we're the little engine that could in many ways. You know, it's because it's I think that there's great stuff in the peaks, and I still think there's. i I look at it now and i still think it's evolving there's a lot of things that i'd like to go back to the to the uh, drawing table and um, dissect again and say oh maybe we weren't right about this section because i can think i can i can come up with two more ideas or three more ideas that this could go any other way and we chose one road and of course because deadlines happen you've got to do all those kinds of things it's a weird thing you like to think if something is finished and i don't know that art hmm. ever gets finished especially in this kind of thing. I mean, if it's up on a canvas and then they put it behind the glass okay the artist can't get to it anymore he can't finish it or he'll die before he can but until we can still kind of go back and so much of so much of what we've done is has, has been during the fermentation process too which is great just having a year go by and and listening to it again and going oh wow that's really bad and we you know I didn't see that. Or that's really, really good and how can I make that better, you know, there's so, so it's an interesting it's just a fascinating process. Uh you look
2: at look at Picasso, you know, just endlessly reworking obsessively these themes in, in his oh, work. Yeah. Or or, yeah. or Bules, you know, so sort of <laughs> taking 20 years just sort of tinkering and and trying to find that find the perfect So this form. is
1: our tenor period <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Can you give me a potted version of the journey from the commission from Utah through
0: to the Gilgood Theatre? Oh, my goodness. Well, the idea all began in a parking lot in Cedar City, Utah, when Peter said, I think I'm going to call Ken Ludwig and see about the musical rights to lend me a tenor. To which I said, well, I think that's insane because I'm sure people have been beating down his door for 20 years to get the rights. So Peter, who had been acquainted with Ken, emailed him. We got a response the next day that said, gee, fellas, never thought about it. Give me a few days. And this was on a Thursday. By Saturday, he'd written us and said, I think it's a great idea. Let's do it, and I will be as involved or as uninvolved as you would like. So that was in October of 2004. So um, it was February of 2005. We actually signed the option agreement. Uh, We had the rights. Peter and I were both really, really busy that year. So we talked when we could, uh, just sort of outlining how to take this from the well-crafted farce that it is into um, musical form, which meant adding depth and emotion and opening it up scenically. So we spent most of 2005 just chatting and actually started writing in the beginning of 2006, um, then in May of 2006, there was a workshop, a little, uh, not a workshop, but a reading at the Shakespeare festival with a small group of people of what we had at that point, mm-hmm. which was a rough draft of the entire script and a bunch of songs in act one and a bunch of songs in act two, but by no means a complete score, but it was enough for them for the festival to sign off, uh, to put it in their season the following year, 2007. So then we were able to finish getting it written enough to go into rehearsal. Um, It's a very truncated rehearsal schedule because the festival rehearses six shows at the same time to open all the same week as part of their repertory festival. And um, it opened uh, to great acclaim here locally. And then what we didn't, expect was to have producers from New York showing up to see it simply based on the title and the fact that it was now a musical. Um, And all three of the producing entities that showed up to see it expressed interest in going forward with it. So we sort of did a little interview sequence with them and a little bidding war with them to see who we felt most comfortable with and who's whose um, ideas of how to take it forward seemed best to us and ended up going with a gentleman named Martin Platt. Who I had worked with over the course of 10 years as both a sort of a co-producer and a writer. We had collaborated on a piece and then um, we started moving forward. They hired a general manager. They started raising money and then th- things got a little ugly. Um, Ken, some reason decided that he couldn't let us go forward with this, even though all the legal documents existed that said we could and should. And so we ended up in a a litigation battle um, for about 16 months. Uh, And basically, when we came out the other end of that, uh, we were right where we had left off. Nothing was really gained or lost except a whole lot of money to lawyers. Um, As it turned out, it was because I
1: think uh, Ken wanted to do the Broadway revival of the play without
0: without any you know
2: any competition,
0: any competition. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) and that all uh, overlapped, and so at at the time, yeah, at the time that they announced the revival, we were just closing down the lawsuit. Hmm which was going to put us off for another year. And I was ready to burn the whole thing and start something new.
1: Well, we actually, we actually did. I have a whole alternate reality script about the ghost of Caruso. Uh, I, I'm not kidding. I, we have a whole yeah. other thing with a whole different t- title. And no. then
0: lend me another tenor, I think. Right. <laughs> and then Martin said, hold on a minute. He called some people in London because he had produced in London. And within a week, we were, um, mobilized to bring this piece to London at some point. So that took us through a workshop, a full workshop in London in March of 2010, which got us to the Plymouth production, which was September, October of 2010. This is a Theatre Royal Plymouth. Theatre Royal Plymouth, yes, which was a great experience. Great experience. We learned a lot, we rewrote a lot. And then it was a matter of waiting for a theater to open up in the West End, and there was um, there weren't any theaters available. Uh, and so we sort of went into a holding pattern. <laughs> and by the time we got to spring of 2011, it looked like nothing would even think about happening until September. And suddenly the Gielgud Theater was available. And uh, we got that call the first week of April, we got the Gilgood Theatre and were to go into rehearsal three weeks later, and we hadn't even finished recasting yet. So everybody went into hyperdrive to to make this happen, and then we opened at Gilgood on fifteenth 15th. 15th of June. I think that was a few more words than you had anticipated, but <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty well done. Yeah. But that was the that was the journey,
2: and Ian Talbot came on board
0: for Plymouth. Yeah, he Ian Chompa came on board actually for the workshop. Yeah, right. he was on board the September before the year before. Yeah, we fun. met Ian in September of 2009 mm-hmm. and fell in love with him. Totally, and fell just in love. seemed like the right fit for us and the project. And he he moved us forward in great ways. Yes, he did. He's, a, he's brilliant, brilliant director. Yeah, and we had a great time with him.
2: Talk about the process of, if you would, about of, of adaptation. Perhaps this is a question primarily for you, Peter. Because, um, well, two things. One is that um, so many of the great musicals have been adaptations, either of first or indeed second-rate material sometimes. Um, What was that process like for you? And and the second part of that question um, is, what are the particular problems of turning a farce into a piece of musical theatre?
1: This is a great question, actually, because uh, a lot of the reviews stated, um, you know, how could they call this a farce? And I don't think we ever thought of it as a farce once it was in musical form. Mm. I I always think of it as a musical comedy, mm. with uh, a farce homage right in the middle somewhere. Mm. It was injecting two dimensional characters with 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 full lives, full three dimensions to them, and and that was the difficulty I think in the adaptation. And a lot of it happened in just our conversations, Brad and mine, uh, as we were starting. Uh, we were just, uh, the questions were similar to this. How, how can everything we do inform these characters? What, for instance, if we, uh, early on, we got the idea of having three ex-wives of Saunders, which would be a fun little musical trio as well. And, uh, uh, and that would also inform Maggie's not wanting to get married because she sees that it has not been working, mm-hmm. you know, for many, many times. So things like that, even even uh, what you do to one character, how it informs another character and, and fleshes them out, too. So th- those kinds of things were great challenges and, and great fun challenges, I think. Um, very early on, because I had done the show, I knew we couldn't have a song like a Be Yourself between uh, – Tito, who's the mentor of Max, and have Max sleep with his wife like he does. And, and he does have an affair. He, he, he cheats on his wife uh, in the play. Uh, but he's not a character that you really care about like you care about in a musical. You know, So you have to fall in love with these characters, I think, in a musical, um, especially something that you – know, especially you're dealing with opera. And, and love is all over that kind of love, – love drips all over opera and, and that world. Um, and so that that was those were the challenges. I was hell bent on having three Atellos instead of two running around. The play only has the two, and so it was it was a question of how to mathematically devise that. And then everything kind of fell into place from, from a lot of those decisions early on.
2: At the very heart of it is a real love of old-fashioned musical comedy, um, yeah. that, that's how it feels feels to me. I mean, you have a, that wonderful set piece where everybody in the hotel room from the, the Bell Boys, are, everyone is, it has the, a fantastic song and dance number, which just kind of lifts the roof off.
0: Well, I mean, we be, because it's set in the 30s, we thought, well, why not just let it be an homage to those great old musicals. I mean, you know, and, and at one point, and once, once we added Chris Walker's orchestrations to the mix, I actually said to Chris, I said, I think people are going to come see this and wonder how they missed it the first time around. <laughs> Cause it felt like something that somebody had discovered in an archive somewhere. Yeah. Just in in the style of it and the structure of it. And, and even in, in the musical choices, you know, mm. um, one gentleman, I think it was at the workshop, he actually said, how have I never known about this? Yeah. And yeah. Ian said, because it's brand new. Yeah. He said, no, it's not. He says, yes, it is. It's brand new. It's ne- it's never been a musical before it. But he felt like he knew it. Yeah, And yeah, I, I took that as a real compliment.
2: So you had a terrific team. You talk about Chris Walker orchestrations, um, Ian yeah. direction. Um, and um, well, I, I met you guys when you Kind enough to come and talk to um, our class at BML, which is the the class I teach in in North London. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned Paul Geminiani, uh, yeah. who I think you referred to as your as your Yoda. Yes. Uh, can you explain a little bit about that?
0: Was a little Buddha to him as well. <laughs> Paul is sort of the godfather of musical direction in New York. You know, I mean, as I tell people all the time, ten years ago he won the lifetime achievement award (laughs) for musical direction and he's still going strong and just, and, 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 the, I think the most humbling thing about Paul is he asked to be part of this project after he heard it. I mean, they didn't go begging to Paul saying, will you please come help us? Or please be part of this. He asked to be part of it. And, you know, he's been an idol of mine since I was a kid and to suddenly be not only in the room with him but having gin and tonics with him and <laughs> and and the great thing about paul is yeah he's he's a lion and he's a teddy bear and and when he speaks y- you listen because even even if he's skirting around something you know at the core of what he's talking about something must be needing attention or needing fixing and um, and I just love a person who doesn't mince words. You know, he's not afraid to say, you really need to look at this because this is not working. And he won't necessarily always tell you how to fix it. And he'll say, I don't know how to fix it, but this doesn't work. And then you sit down and look at it with fresh eyes and go, oh, well, that's because it's eight bars too long or, or, or whatever the fix is. But um, to have somebody like that connected to this with most of the rest of us. I mean, Ian and Chris being the exceptions, but we're real newbies at this, uh, you know, at, at working in the commercial world. I've spent my whole life working in the not-for-profit for world of, in the States. And to suddenly have Paul Geminiani sitting there next to you, punching you on the arm going, this is really great. Or <laughs> that really is a problem. I mean, it doesn't matter what he said mm-hmm. to have that sort of expertise in the room was, uh a real unexpected pleasure and honor
1: it makes all of us rise to the occasion as well I also in this mix I, I i must uh talk about colin billiam because i think colin oh, was yeah. just a genius uh throughout the process as well our musical director uh and, and he has grown me. to watch him grow all of us grow under the tutelage of of ian and and, and paul and, and chris's stuff because uh, we were all very hungry. We're, what makes us all good, I think, is we're all great learners. Uh, we don't we don't have it all figured out. We're dying to learn how to do it right. Yeah. And and, and when I don't by right I mean how to, how we all uh, realize the full potential uh, together uh, and and what what that means for this group for you know and it's a great team even down to Paul Farnsworth cause, and Paul's stuff. Yeah. Also, fleshes out characters like to to other levels too. I mean, he's there's a there were a lot of geniuses on this team. Uh, <laughs> and it was a gift that wow. I, I hope will come again. You know, I, I I always say to my wife, we'll always have Plymouth. You know, because Plymouth was it's our it was our Paris. If I could be if I could go to Plymouth every year of my life, <laughs> I, I would just to because that that whole experience. Uh, all this sort of came out of that, the, to have a facility of that magnitude. I've never seen anything like it, actually, mm. building the stuff that they do at TR2 and, and to be able to rehearse on the set. and This doesn't happen in the real world. So I don't know how we got there, uh, but that, no matter what happens, that that is a gift and a blessing that I will treasure forever.
2: Peter, what were the real challenges of getting it from a play to a, to a musical? Or or at least, what's the thing that you ended up kind of staying up at night and banging your head against the wall?
1: Well, still, to to this day, still, I still, uh, it it is, for me, always has been about uh, its construction and getting it out of the penthouse. I I still don't think we've gotten it out of the penthouse enough. Again, it's one of those things that I still work on and I go, hmm, that was the hardest thing, uh, finding moments and, and making those moments organic, you know, when you do go out that they're coming from something and you're just not going out, going in, going out, going in, that there's a reason to branch out to. Have we found enough reasons to open it up? Because uh, every, I think every time we go outside, we discover more heart to it and we discover uh, the world more. And so then we bring that world back into the penthouse. It's a different world. And the penthouse kind of changes. Even though you're back at the penthouse, the world has changed inside the penthouse because you've gone out. Uh, so that kind of it, it, it's it, for me, it's always about the epic question of, of construction question uh, for the whole thing that that work is never done, you know, and 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 second guessing never ends.
2: Tell me about your training and how that's informed what you do now. Maybe we'll start with uh, Brad.
0: Well, I mean, the interesting thing about that question is I never trained as a writer. Um, writing was something I had always just I mean I'm speaking primarily of composing I've also done lyrics and book and things like that but it's just something that because I started in music it just seemed to be a natural outgrowth of being at the piano and um, for me every opportunity to write came because somebody said hey you play the piano could you do this arrangement hey you play the piano could you write some incidental music for this play I'm doing opportunities just kept being presented to me because people assume if you can play the piano you can compose which is not necessarily <laughs> true so the learning process for me has just been trial and error you know somebody said you know and and very rarely have I sat down and written something just for myself um you know and I'm I'm I feel very lucky in that way that, 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 that people have made the assumption that, well, you play the piano, you must know how to orchestrate. So to actually train to be a writer, I mean, I think the best training is just to sit down and write. That's what I tell people all the time. If you want to be a writer, it means you get up every day and you write something. Yeah. You can't be a writer on Mondays. mm you know, or if you want to be a composer and I have periods where I do this and periods where I can't because of other work, where I do get up and go to the piano and write something every day. And then the the long stretches when I can't, I really miss it. And it's not even necessarily anything that anybody will ever hear. It's just to keep those muscles toned. Cause I call it being in the zone. When I'm in the writing zone, I know I'm there and eight hours goes by in twenty minutes. <laughs> Of working and and it may be something that I'm I may never play for anybody, but I may go back to it again and again just to see, break it down and analyze it and change it and see see what it means in how is this different than what I wrote last week. So to train a writer, I'm not sure I would know how to do that. Yeah, you know, because I just remember in composition classes in college, we were just told go home and write something in the style of Bartok, go home and write a piece in the style of you know. Stravinsky, And it it, it it became sort of an imitative exercise, but mm-hmm. still mostly to get people outside of what their personal box was or to help them discover what their personal box was going to be. So, you know, I don't know that there's a magic pill or a magic glass. I think mm-hmm. that the secret is to just put things on paper, whether it's words, whether it's lyrics, whether it's poetry, whether it's songs, whether it's melodies, and share them with somebody who knows more than you do. You know, getting back to the earlier discussion, I mean, I say all the time, being the smartest person in the room, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> I always want there to be somebody in the room that I have to try to be as good as or as knowledgeable as. Because being the smartest person in the room can be a real dead-end street. Mm. Well,
1: you never have to worry about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my partner.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm working with a gentleman right now in California. I'm actually writing a libretto for him. And he's, he's one of these people, he's, he's retired, and, but he still composes and still travels around. He just got back from a university in Tennessee where they're, they were doing a workshop of his opera, Medea. And he's a very much a current, you know, I'd say 20th century, now 21st century composer. And he was a teacher of mine 35 years ago and called me and said, I need somebody to do a libretto for this one woman opera I'm writing about Amelia Earhart. Are you interested? And just to get to work with him because I tend to think in a very linear way. And this man is as abstract as anybody I have ever known. So I said yes in order to learn how to be more abstract just by mm. being in the room with him. It terrifies me. But that's all the more reason to take it on. You know, there's no deadline. There's no production looming. So it's I think it's going to be a real freeing experience for me. To explore what that is,
1: I agree i'm chair of the department here at Southern Utah University, Theatre and Dance, and I see young playwrights and, and you can only teach the ones I think that that realize how delicious construction is and how to and wanting to break out of that construction. I think for me, uh, very similar to Brad, only my background was acting. I was acting for many, many years, uh, and I found myself speaking as different characters outside of the place I was in sometimes. I'm like, there's, why are there voices? Why are there things, there are scenes I'm playing in my head that, and I just started to write them down, and I, and, uh, and I would use them, or people would do them as little audition pieces, and then I, I had an idea for a couple of musicals early on that I started writing and got produced, and so much of it for me was tied with the stuff I was writing was getting produced early on, uh, so... There was a validation there. I think in, in the early years, it's nice to have something where you are, you're getting validated that gives you the permission to keep writing, too. I think so many people have something in them that if they never get validated, it never comes out. And I always wonder how many people die uh, uh-huh. with all these wonderful ideas in them that uh-huh. no one ever encouraged to come out. That—that uh-huh. uh, That is such a tragedy. For me, you know, because I think everyone's got you know that's true what, what they say that everyone's got has a a great novel in them or a great story or cause, I mean we hear things from certain people that we'll just hear stories and we'll you know at least tell us if you're not going to write tell us we'll put, we'll find a place for it you know and and a lot of it does creep into who who you are as a writer other people's stories but yeah it, it, for me I I, I always now I, I I have a folder of about fifty projects which are all in different stages of development. And uh, I I start with some I just I've written scenes, some I have uh, structures for the whole synopsis, some, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's all different. Each one is written differently. Each one is, you know, is a different experiment. So, you know, I I think it's, you just have to keep banging your head against the wall, you know, and then I, the more you do that, I guarantee there will be an opening for you to step through and, and have a burst, you know, and you burst through there and you have, you have a big writing week or, or that turns into a month or, you know, things like that. But you have to keep going, you have to keep chipping away at the sculpture. You can't just let it sit like a block of marble in the middle of the living room. You've got to, even if you just take one little shot at it every day. But you've got to take a shot
2: at it. Do you have any um, additional advice for people who are writing shows or trying to write shows, trying to get them on at this moment in 2011?
1: Be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Be very
0: afraid. <laughs> keep,
1: keep, keep following
0: your dream. Mm-hmm. That sounds the stupidest thing in the world, but it's still true. Just keep <laughs> doing what you're doing. And connecting with other people who are yeah. like-minded. I mean, yeah. that was one of the greatest things for us, uh, the whole experience in Plymouth and in London, was being thrown together with that team of people. I would go back in a heartbeat
1: in, just in a and work second.
0: with Ian Talbot and Paul Farnsworth and Chris Walker and, and Colin Billing and all of those people. I feel like we've got a built-in team now yeah. that happened because of of tenor. And, you know, I would love nothing more than to move to London and write musicals with that group of people mm-hmm. and produce them. I mean, there's there's something about finding those people who become part of your personal web so that you're not sitting at home alone writing a play and complaining that it never gets done because you don't ever associate with people. And it's just, it's, just, it's such an act of courage to put your work out there. Mm. You just have to be brave And resilient in a way. I I guess I would say if you can't take criticism, you probably shouldn't try to be a writer. (laughs) You know, if you're going to resist everything everybody says, you're probably doomed. It's a living, breathing process. Because everybody, you know, you get your first draft done and you think, okay, it's done, let's produce it. And then you find out, oh, no, 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 no. And, And yeah, and just to embrace the process. Because without the process and without collaboration... It doesn't happen.
2: I guess because Leniateria found the stage, we're uh, we're not going to see the ghost of Caruso made flesh. Um,
1: <laughs> not anytime soon, anyway.
2: <laughs> but do you guys have any plans for a, for a new show?
0: I'm going to pitch a few to him today. Oh yeah, <laughs> we've got a couple of projects that that for purposes currently will remain nameless. A couple mm-hmm. of films that we've been spent two years trying to find, track down the rights to, or just try to find the right person to talk to, to be able to even see if the rights are available. Um, and both of these are wildly different than Lend Me a Tenor. Um, and I think, I think that's important for us is to, is to write in another vein so that you, you know, prove that there is range, because I think that the two of us, there is, I mean, I really do think we could do anything. Mm. Um and yeah, Peter says he's got a couple to pitch. Every time we get together, he's got two or three new thoughts that he wants to pitch. Um, we would prefer adapting dead authors, I think. Yeah. No more <laughs> living authors. Easier. They're too much trouble.
2: <laughs> Dickens was a doddle.
0: Yes. <laughs> Having lent me a tenor now as a sort of a calling card, if you will, mm. uh, yeah. is, I think is really helpful for us. I sure. mean, it puts us in a light... Uh, in the world that we weren't in a year ago,
2: mm, mm,
0: yeah. and uh, and we'll see where that takes us. And you know, we have the cast recording, which sort of has become my business card, to just to let people who don't know, well, this is a sample of what we do. And um, it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. That you know, people said this must have been a dream come true, and I say, well, it actually wasn't because I'd never dreamed of doing a- <laughs> I'd never dreamed of doing a musical in London. It yeah. never occurred to me that that would even be possible. Yeah. yeah it's impossible to put into words how extraordinary the experience was to
1: sit in the Gielgud theater while they're playing your stuff. I mean,
0: yeah, all the, people it's the most humbling in that thing theater. in the yeah. world. It's just, it's, it's just astonishing. And one thing about Peter and me, I think that's that is what keeps us honest is we don't take anything for granted, no. you know, cause there are, I've had a lot of people since I've been back from London saying, well, so what's it like to be in the big time? Yeah. Well, It's just the same as it is anywhere else. They're just a bigger budget, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's not entirely true, but it's, you know, if you embrace the process the way we do, that was a great thing. But getting to do a show with the feel good was really the anomaly in my life, not the new, I mean, it's certainly, it's a new high bar that we'd like to achieve again, but it's funny how people's perceptions are, you know, the glorious feeling is as glorious as it can be. And the
1: down feelings are even worse than they were before. Yeah. you know when you when 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 th- certain things fail in certain areas in this arena, it's there's devastation like you've never mm-hmm. known to you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole other game, and you got to boy, you got to be thick skinned to play it. And that's why I gain a lot of weight. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
2: Addicted to certain fast food outlets around the corner from the, yeah. Uh, exactly. Well, guys, I want to say an enormous thank you for giving us time out of your very valuable and uh, and busy day together to share your experience. I mean, uh, to have, um, to hear about something which is so fresh, you know, uh, a West End musical premiere from this year. So very, very valuable to our listeners. So I want to say a huge thank you to you both, Brad Carroll and Peter Sham. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jim. Our our love to, to the UK, dear to our hearts.